0: sickle, bleeding saints and forest witches, the past unburied, the books unsealed, the old celebration returning. And welcome to my study. Please come in and have a seat. All the uh, books surrounding you are used to research our show. And the individual here to my right, along with managing domestic duties, serves as our reader for any passages that will be directly quoted from these sources. Her name is Mrs. Carswell. Hello. Well, as we uh, mentioned in our last show, Mrs. Carswell, with a bit of support from me, is starting on a new venture. The training of bees for a bee circus.
1: Like a flea circus, but with
0: bees. Yes, as those of you who have been listening know, Mrs. Carswell and her family have a long history of beekeeping. Yes. And, as it turns out, her uncle, back in the day, happened to run just such an enterprise. And his old bee circus equipment is being sent out to help uh, jumpstart the whole thing.
1: Yes, at least I hope so. I spoke to Mother about it, at least.
0: But she has someone to pack it up and send it, as you said.
1: It should be happening. She wouldn't at first, but by the time I hung up, it seemed like she was going to. I just had to listen to her go on and on about them. Not so much Uncle Ebert as Aunt Althea this time. She never approved of their marriage.
0: But the process is started...
1: Yes, it's not hard to get to in the attic in the other house.
0: Well, at least she knows where it all is and we will be getting started soon.
1: Aunt Althea was a big part of the Psychic Bee Show. Uncle Ebert, said the bees, connected with her more because she was blind. They had terrible fights. With Mother, I mean. The three of them. So, well, yes, she'll be sending it all soon. I think.
0: I hope so. You've already made progress. Mrs. Carswell has already begun training one of her more gifted bees. Alex. Training Alex to perform a little trick. I saw it yesterday and it was actually rather astonishing. (laughs) Thank you. Anyway, I did want to give listeners a heads up on our current show, which is a bit different. Uh, The topic was inspired by those uh, recent reports from the Pentagon regarding UFO sightings or the... uh, Uh, unidentified aerial phenomena, as they're calling them. It got me thinking of uh, the research I've done earlier on the uh, flying saucer believers and how they were connected with older 19th century occultism. Uh, That is, uh, themes a bit more typical of bone and sickle. I think it should be entertaining, if a bit of a tangent.
1: And I have fewer quotes, which gives me more time with Alex.
0: Yes, I intended that.
1: It's a shame I can't share my progress with Mother. you think she'd be happy for me.
0: Oh, well... She
1: just had such a hatred for Aunt Althea.
0: Anyway, it's fewer quotes and a shorter show. We're trying out this shorter format because I do sometimes hear that listeners get a bit overwhelmed by the uh, waterfall of information in the 45-minute shows. I had to break this one in two halves because it ended up too long. So, you'll be hearing the first half now and the other shortly. I actually have some excellent material for a third, but we'll see how these two do first. Uh, Think of it as our uh, summer saucer series. I guess. Honestly,
1: I think Mother was just jealous of Aunt Althea because of her blindness and the way the bees took to her. She would scream at Uncle Ebert and say maybe she should blind herself, so the bees would love her, too. She even mixed up some lie one day, Uh, but no one thought she would really do it. Grandmother finally had to step in and put an end to it.
0: Do I want to know what that means?
1: Uh, No, probably you don't.
0: Uh, No, okay. Well, that's that's good. Anyway, uh, to our show. Episode 71... Friends from Venus, Theosophists in Space. I am your host, Al Reidenour, and this show, Bone and Sickle, uh, generally examines the intertwining of horror and folklore, this time a bit more science fiction and occultism, all in a uh, historical context. I started the show as a way to further explore these uh, areas of intersection after writing my book, The Krampus and the Old Dark Christmas. Bone and Sickle only exists thanks to the generosity of our Patreon donors who receive monthly rewards, uh, including short bonus episodes. I'll have uh, more on Patreon at the end of our episode.
2: that can and will be certified at the proper time. I have been instructed by a person from another planet. I have had direct contact with people from other planets. I have ridden in their spaceship. They have taken me to their planet and are by far more advanced spiritually and physically than the people of this planet. At the present time, they are observing us.
0: The last bit you heard here was from a record sold at talks given by Howard Menger, one of the so-called contactees of the 1950s and 60s, a time when UFOs were simply flying saucers. The visitors weren't the gray aliens who were so busy abducting and probing people throughout the 90s. They were simply space people. They were just like us, only better, uh, spiritually advanced, as you heard, and they didn't mind telling us so. Can
2: you see or measure an atom? Yet you can explode one. So what if we do develop this solenite bomb? We'd be even a stronger nation than now.
0: Stronger. You see? You see? Your stupid minds! Stupid! Stupid!
2: That's all I'm taking from you. Get back here, you devil! By
0: 1957, when Edward made Plan 9 from outer space, this trope of superior aliens hoping to save man from himself was already getting old. It's so deeply encoded in science fiction that you'd hardly stop to think where it comes from, much less suspect uh, 19th century esotericism as a source, but That is where we're headed. In fact, our October 2018 episode on spiritualism might uh, provide you some good background for our current show. Anyway, we'll only be scratching the surface of this topic, only touching on a few of the uh, major players in the contactee movement who all happened to be named George. And uh, so we'll be talking about three of what they call the Four Georges. And as you may have guessed, a commonality with these Georges is that they tended to talk to people from Venus, a planet which, as we'll see, was associated with bringers of wisdom in 19th century occultism. The space people of the contactees tended to deliver honestly wearisome sermons that Reflected the teachings of Theosophy, albeit uh, and adulterated for popular consumption to a, a greater or lesser extent. So uh, let's have a little background on Theosophy, or a refresher on what you may already know. It is uh, primarily associated with the Russian international adventurer Helena Blavatsky, who penned its uh, foundational texts. Uh, teachings uh, promulgated by the uh, Theosophy Society, uh, which he co-founded in New York in 1875. Um, Blavatsky had worked as a spirit medium, uh, led seances in the days of spiritualism, and had transformed spiritualism's spirit guides, that would be the people the uh, medium would talk to, into what uh, theosophy calls its masters of ancient wisdom, uh, advanced adepts from the East, secreting themselves primarily in the mountains of Tibet. And they occupied uh, ageless human bodies, but also could move through the astral realms and communicate their ancient wisdom through messages they channeled to Blavatsky. The core teachings presented in her um, first major book in 1877 Isis unveiled, and then uh, nine years later in The Secret Doctrine, melded elements of uh, Hinduism, Zoroastrianism, the ancient mystery cults, and Egyptian myth, uh, assumed to be all aspects of a single ancient truth uh, destined to replace uh, contemporary um, sectarian faiths and to bridge the gap between religion and science. Theosophy might not have been widely embraced in all of its uh, arcane specifics, but its broader impact was to uh, spark an interest in Eastern religions in the West and to birth innumerable uh, spiritual paths we generally class as New Age. Many scholars regard uh, Blavatsky's teachings and the success they met with as a sort of response to her contemporary Charles Darwin. If the theory of evolution seemed to be winning the battle against the West's old-fashioned Christianity, theosophy offered a sort of super-religion, something both newer and older, and perhaps more robust, and a religion offering its own doctrine of evolution, not biological, but spiritual. The contactee movement arose at a time when science again seemed to threaten the culture in the form of the atomic bomb, And Blavatsky offered here a particularly relevant myth in her retelling of the Atlantis legend. The uh, Atlanteans represented one of her uh, seven ages of mankind's spiritual evolution. It's uh, far too convoluted to explore here in any depth, but what's relevant is her portrayal of the Atlantean technology featuring airships powered by a sort of spiritual energy, an example, by the way, of her notion of a higher science melding the spiritual and the technological. As the Atlanteans turn their advanced energies towards dark ends and face the destruction of their continent, Blavatsky's masters appear from the etheric realm to warn the righteous of Atlantis to flee, much like the saucer people heralding the threat of nuclear annihilation. Among the themes from theosophy we'll be seeing with the contactees is this idea of an advanced technology used to manipulate subtle energies, as well as a theological push towards universalism transformed into the notion of space people welcoming mankind into an extraterrestrial confederation of the spiritually enlightened. One element adapted from Hinduism by Lovatsky and uh, developed further by later theosophists, um, Annie Besant, Charles Ledbetter, Alice Bailey and others, is the figure of Sanat Kumara who's said to reside on Venus or the planet's etheric plane. Sanat Kumara is one of the masters advanced to the level of deity, actually, who leads the Council of Venus or the Seven Holy Kumars uh, beings uh, equated with uh, Christianity's seven angels, or the Chaldean uh, seven rays, and so forth. Uh, according to some theosophists, these highly advanced beings, led by Sanat Kumara, came to earth to establish a colony some 18 million years ago. This was the uh, kingdom of Shambhala, a floating city hovering in the etheric realm over the Gobi Desert. It seems worth pointing out that in traditional Tibetan culture, from which the name and concept is borrowed, Chambala is always represented as a city or arrangement of figures laid out in a circular pattern, a uh, mandala, which uh, brings to mind the psychologist C.G. Jung's comments in his 1957 book, Flying Saucers, a Modern Myth of Things Seen in the Skies, in which he describes the saucers being sighted toward the end of his life, I think this is his last book. As
1: Spontaneous projections,
0: which appear as
1: an ostensibly physical fact. The rounded wholeness of the mandala becomes a spaceship controlled by an intelligent being.
0: But back to Blavatsky. Venus was regarded as the most significant and spiritually advanced of the planets by the Theosophists, In its guise as the morning star, the Theosophists regarded it as a symbol of esoteric illumination and the dawning of a new illuminated era. The uh, Greek name for the morning star, Phosphorus, literally translated means light bearer or light bringer, um, which in its Latin form, Latin translation, would be Lucifer. The name given to the devil thanks to a passage in the biblical book of Isaiah, heaping scorn upon the king of Babylon and comparing him to the morning star falling. So in Latin translations, it gives us Lucifer falling from heaven and helped to establish the myth of Lucifer as an angel cast down from heaven. Again, back to Blavatsky, in keeping with her... Notoriously um, contrarian temperament, she named the journal, which the Theosophy Society published between 1887 and 1897, Lucifer, explaining her choice in a September 1887 article entitled
1: The History of a Planet, Venus the light Bringer, has not to do with darkness and everything with light.
0: Before discussing our Georges, I want to return for a moment to another contactee, Howard Menger, whose record we heard sampled at the top of the show. The album released in 1957 was called Authentic Music from Another Planet. I have also been instructed to tell the people that
2: those hearing this
0: music would get a feeling,
2: would reach an awareness. They would, would react, react in their the conscious, state conscious state with understanding, understanding and spiritual love for each other.
0: Along with these spoken art. intros, it consists of three instrumental tracks, said to be recreations in a terrestrial studio, of music Menger heard on Saturn, a music he played himself under telepathic control of his Saturnian host, on an instrument almost exactly like an earth piano, as it turns out. Music you're hearing now. I apologize, it's not sounding particularly otherworldly. Menscher's trip to Saturn was one of several detailed in his 1959 book, From Outer Space to You, uh, the first of many books as he was one of the more long-lived contactees, writing and speaking about saucers or aliens um, till his death in 2009. His outer space career, he says, began in 1932, when, at the age of ten, he encounters in the woods...
1: The most exquisite woman my young eyes had ever beheld. The warm sunlight caught the highlights of her golden hair as it cascaded around her face and shoulders. The curves of her lovely body were delicately contoured revealed through the translucent material of clothing which reminded me of the habit of skiers.
0: The woman, who is from Venus, which shouldn't be surprising, hints that they have met before a very, very, very long time ago, and then years later, as an adult, a strangely similar looking blonde at a saucer lecture catches Menger's eye. Her Earth name is Connie Weber, but Menger is granted a past life flashback revealing that they were lovers eons ago on Venus. From this point on, in his writing and in his saucer talks, he referred to his wife Connie as Marla, the name by which the Venusian identified herself, supposedly. And one of the tracks on the record is dedicated to her under that title. I don't have the original track, but I do have a 2012 recording, which is rather lovely. Marla, Marla, you are my answer prayer sent from thee. Trying to track down a bit more on that one but we'll link what i have in the show notes on may 21st 1959 the bbc aired a peculiar episode of their show lifeline it began with the camera focused on a banner embroidered with sanskrit and the audience heard
2: Number two, relationship, Mars, subject, demand the truth.
0: The voice is that of London taxi driver and cosmic contactee, George King whom viewers of Lifeline later saw donning black glasses to channel another entity.
2: Good evening. Good evening. My dear friend. Your name is? I am known as Isherus. Where do you come from? The planet Venus.
0: If you had trouble understanding the Venusian accent, this entity was Aetherius, whose significance is such that he lends his name to the Aetherius Society, which King founded in 1959, and which still exists today in London and Los Angeles primarily, albeit with slightly less emphasis on space people, and more on yoga, and fulfilling your inner potential, and more run-of-the-mill things. King arrived upon the scene a few years later than our other two Georges, but his teachings hew closest to theosophical doctrines. It seems his mother encouraged an interest in esoteric matters, as she was known as a clairvoyant and healer, and by the age of 25, King had become particularly devoted to yoga, which he practiced 8 to 10 hours a day for the next decade, so it says in Aetherius Society publications. Yoga was one thing, but it all got more serious on May 8th, 1954. Uh, One Saturday morning, while I was washing up some dishes,
2: I had a voice, uh, quite definitely a voice out of this world, say to me, prepare yourself, you are to become the voice of interplanetary
0: parliament. Soon after this, King experienced another visit from the cosmic hierarchy.
2: Uh, I was sat in a room. and a man walked through a locked door uh, across the, the um, carpet on the floor, and he was quite physical. When he crossed the boards, they creaked, and he sat down opposite to me and began
0: to talk to me. In keeping with Blavatsky's masters, this unnamed master had taken the form of the man from India, and it was by him that King was trained to make contact himself with the master Aetherius from Venus. King soon began sharing his channeled teachings, lecturing around England, and opening an Aetherius headquarters in London, and in 1962 in a converted bungalow in Hollywood. That's where King lived the rest of his life. The Society's foundational text, The Twelve Blessings, is a sort of extension of Christ's Sermon on the Mount delivered to King by Christ himself, or, as he's known in Ethereum and other New Age lore, the Master Jesus, who also is said to reside on Venus. The importance and authority of the channeled material is emphasized in a story involving King's mother, Mary, who, on January 19, 1959, had a very peculiar experience, which King describes in his BBC interview.
2: I'd like to... Um point out that my mother has traveled in one of these vehicles in a physical body and um, she was um, she went along to to a meeting that was arranged and um, she had to walk through mud in a field and um, she got her shoes covered with mud she walked up some steps and into a flying saucer
0: This turns out to be merely a scout ship, taking Mary to a much larger mothership piloted by Mars Sector 6, as it turns out. And in that ship, she meets Jesus and presents him the book written by her son. He places it in a receptacle prepared to its exact dimensions. And as strange and beautiful music sounds from within the craft, bringing Mary to ecstatic tears, The Master Jesus is said to have declared,
1: Blessed is he who reading this book doth understand, but exalted is he even among angels who reading this book doth take it to his heart and follow its precepts. Tell my son that this book is now and forever holy.
0: In 1958, on Holdstone Down, which is a mountain near his birthplace in North Devon, King had already had his own meeting with Jesus, who is uh, not quite as we'd expect him. This is the Master Jesus, after all. A May 1971 article from the San Francisco Examiner provides uh, details, uh, quoting King's own writings, and saying that Jesus turns out to be
1: clean-shaven with a firm chin. Soft, kind lips, and a well-shaped nose. His skin was tanned a deep golden color. His long, light brown hair fell to his broad, straight shoulders.
0: And he happens to be carrying a magic wand...
1: The tall figure from another world then pointed a wand tipped with a five-pointed crystal star at Dr. King and a vivid surge of blue flame shot through him.
0: While King's revelations and encounter stories are on the one hand rather mm, idiosyncratic, other aspects conform to theosophical traditions. they is uh, the universalism with the Buddha also treated as a master, again from Venus. Uh, Krishna resides on Saturn. Lao Tzu and Confucius are also masters along with other teachers who are exclusive to Aetherian lore uh, with names like Jupiter 92 and Zim Zim coefficient for instance. And all these are part of the Interplanetary Council or sometimes the Great White Brotherhood, a term from the uh, Ascended Master School of uh, later Theosophy. Information channeled through or about them was accumulated through King's recorded transcommunications, 600 of them on 180 miles of tape according to one count in the early 1970s. Their teachings about cosmology and spiritual evolution also follow theosophical lines with references to a spiritually and technologically advanced Atlantean stage of civilization as part of human history, beginning not the usual 2 million years ago, but 18, as with Blavatsky. 10 million years ago, the Venusian lord Sanat Kumara hovered over Earth in Shambhala, which is specifically identified as a spacecraft here. In our times, at least two ships or satellites named X-90 and XB-70 circle the Earth undetected thanks to their ability to bend light rays. In his 1961 book, You Are Responsible, King offers a bit more information channeled from Etherius on these invisible ships.
1: The Masters also use this type of vessel when they are spiritualizing your Earth. They come in these vessels to a certain part of your world, and the spiritual radiations that emanate from them bring about a rise of consciousness.
0: The Aetherius Society quite enthusiastically embraces Blavatsky's notion of a higher science or technology used to manipulate subtle energies. Here is George King introducing an invention of this sort in a 1973 film from the Society.
2: Now, this is a metaphysical breakthrough. Uh, for the first time on the physical levels of Earth, we can actually store
0: prayer power. In the film, King stands next to a baby blue plexiglass box the size of a car battery that sits on a tripod. He gestures to a flat white square of the front.
2: Prayer energy can enter through this area and be arrested by the design uh, of the battery and contained in the crystals within this battery.
0: The device's design appears to be something of a trade secret. In the voluminous publications by the Society, you won't find any actual specifics on the engineering of such a marvel by King, but its method of use is well documented. Specific prayer services are organized at Etheria's headquarters, during which robe participants vigorously chant select mantras into the device, which you are hearing, and the total man-hours of prayer are logged after each session. Cosmic masters then alert the society to impending disasters where prayer energies are needed and batteries should be deployed. Aetherius literature is full of breathless accounts of disasters averted and the recommended number of prayer hours discharged against particular earthquakes, political upheavals, hurricanes, forest fires, oil spills, and nuclear meltdowns. Even before 1973, when King invented these batteries, Ethereans deployed their mantras at certain locations for the purpose of planetary healing. Usually, these sites would be a mountain, as King had designated 19 of these around the world as something like planetary chakras that must be occasionally charged to keep things running smoothly. But there's only so much that Aetherians can do. The Theosophical myths of Atlantis and Lemuria embraced by the Contactees depict mankind as rather bullheaded and repeating his mistakes, a grim note on which I'll be wrapping up this shorter episode, though we will be continuing the story shortly in our next show. King takes the Theosophical myth of Atlantis and goes at one better. Rather than a continent being destroyed through human evil, the whole planet by the name of Maldek, he says, was destroyed in a similar manner, the debris of which still exists in the form of an actual asteroid belt between Mars and Jupiter. King wasn't the first to suggest a planet once existed between these two heavenly bodies. Already in the late 18th century, astronomers had noted what they believed was a curiously vacant spot between Mars and Jupiter, based on presumed regularities within the planetary orbits. The name given it was generally Phaethon, but another contactee, George Hunt Williamson, seems to have introduced the name Maldek around 1953. In the Theosophical myth, the destruction of Atlantis is but a single stage of human evolution. It's preceded by the destruction of the continent and people of Lemuria in the Pacific. The Atlanteans arise from survivors of Lemuria, make certain gains, but are destroyed through similar weaknesses. But George King extends that story further back to the planet Maldek. Like Atlantis, their civilization is advanced beyond ours, as he explains in his 1963 book, The Nine Freedoms.
1: The planet was so highly mechanized that the robots took care of all the menial tasks. The inhabitants had discovered a rudimentary form of space travel and could control the weather so that drought and famine became long forgotten.
0: But the fable ends as you'd expect, with the discovery of the atomic bomb and Maldek blasted into rubble.
1: The people who inhabited Maldek were suddenly released into their different etheric planes.
0: The disembodied souls flee through the ether, eventually reincarnating on the planet Earth as the first Lemurians, and they destroy that civilization, and the same fate then befalls the Atlanteans. It's a miserable process which King feared that humans of the Atomic Age were poised to repeat.
1: You
2: better pray to the Lord when you see those flying saucers. It may be the coming of the judgment day. It's a sign there's no doubt of the trouble. There's a whole fleet of them. Look on the ASA. My gosh.
1: The long-awaited Pentagon report on UFOs has finally been released, and it echoes reporting it's from 60 a Minutes report that the, the government cannot explain those objects remain just that, unidentified, unidentified <laughs> and mysterious.
0: There's David Martin. We've talked about UFO incursions at missile sites, at nuclear but weapons store what if these unknown aircraft showed an interest in our nuclear weapon? The recent release of UFO reports from the Pentagon emphasizing the tendency of these unexplained aerial phenomena to be cited around naval ships and military installations, well, it doesn't take much imagination to connect this to the contactee space people and their warnings of self annihilation through our war technologies. A grim note on which we'll end, the notion that you can take the man out of Lemuria, but you can't take the Lemurian out of man. I hope everyone's been enjoying our show and that you uh, might have the opportunity to share episodes with friends or uh, even better to leave a review wherever you listen. As I mentioned at the top of the show, these episodes only keep coming out because of the support of our Patreon subscribers. When you donate, you're contributing towards the more than 100 hours I end up putting into each of these episodes. Pledge commitments begin at $1 and can be edited at any time. Uh, something I haven't been mentioning is the uh, Patreon blog I run, where I post extra bits from my research from each episode, uh, extra related tidbits I couldn't fit in, interesting news or video related to the uh, recent topics. I uh, posted a downloadable uh, I booked recently, for instance, and there must be uh, hundreds of those posts to browse through at this point. Those subscribing at the $4 level or higher now receive a short extra episode in the uh, Marvelous and Rare format, that is, a collection of strange historical anecdotes pulled from old books, all dramatized with sound effects and music, of course. Also, when you sign up, you get immediate access to the growing and substantial back archives of rewards. Not only the posts, but the uh, monthly show soundscapes, the scripts, the uh, extra episodes, and Whatever level you sign up for, you get the entire back catalogue. There are also physical rewards mailed out for higher levels. My Krampus book, the Bone and sickle Candle, and Mystery Kits. And we may be bringing back the Patreon t-shirts in the next months also. I'd like to welcome those generous souls who pledged their support recently... Thank yous to uh, Corianne Wilson and to James Swartout, who says... As a
1: mortician, Bone & Sickle has kept me company on more than a couple occasions in the prep room. Thanks for being informative and entertaining.
0: And uh, we have a a Flemish listener in Belgium, uh, Jens van Biro, who says he is...
1: An old-fashioned folklorist an amateur historian who loves listening with my headphones and my pipe, sitting on the sofa next to my gothic wife and our snoring chihuahua.
0: Oh, well, that sounds pleasant, and I'd love to hear this sort of thing from more of you out there. Also, uh, thank you very much to TILOM2000 for leaving the uh, great show review. Bone and Sickle is written and produced by me, Al ridenauer Mrs. Carswell is played by Sarah Chavez, whose projects and writing related to death and culture you can track at sarah-chavez.com. Thanks so much for listening.